Last week, we saw that in Revelation chapter 12, John has gone back and in a sense behind before the current situation of the churches in Asia Minor. He's trying to put the battle that they and that we are in into a much wider perspective, a cosmic perspective. He does this regularly. And to summarize that, in the first part of chapter 12, we saw that Israel was laboring to give birth to the Messiah. She was opposed by this great red dragon who sought to destroy the people of God. And upon the birth of this male child, sought to destroy and devour the child. But the Messiah, the one destined to rule all nations, we were told, was caught up to God and his throne. And then subsequent to that, the woman, now not Israel, but the New Testament church, flees into the wilderness, a place of testing for the church before the kingdom comes. And she's kept by God there during her sojourn to the promised land. And so our text today picks up after that, chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, and it's sort of an enlargement of the first part of chapter 12. It does two things here, really, this text. Two things. It it explains the, the ramifications, the implications of Christ's victory, His resurrection and His ascension, which we celebrate today. And thus, this is a fitting ascension text. It's a text that says, what does it mean that Christ has been caught up To the throne of God. What are the implications of that? And second thing, it tells us why the woman, the church, has to flee into the wilderness. And so with that, we'll look at the text under the two headings that are there in your bulletin. Uh, War in heaven, verses 7 through 9. And the aftermath of the war in verses 10 through 12. So war and its aftermath. So first, the war in heaven. It's a strange place for there to be a war, but that's exactly what we have here. Verse 7, there was war in heaven. Christ's life, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and particularly his ascension, believe it or not, his being snatched up, caught up to the throne of God, that's what triggers the war. Interesting, isn't it? That's what precipitates the conflict. This is what we have called all heaven breaking loose in the book of Revelation. The ascension of Jesus Christ convulses history. It's not just a footnote to the resurrection. It's not Jesus saying, oh, well, I'm I'm finished here. I think I'll go back. The ascension is a saving act, a mighty act. And it precipitates a conflict. This is why our prayers, earlier we saw this in Revelation, right? Our prayers ascend to heaven. They're received in the ascended Christ. And God throws down judgment into the earth because of our prayers. Our prayers precipitate judgment or convulsions in history because the ascension has first done that. And so we have a war. As Christ descends, and the parties are Michael and his angels, and the dragon, 
and his angels. Michael's a common figure in Jewish literature. He also appears in Daniel chapter 10. Um, he's often the representative of Israel, the leader of her angelic hosts. And so what we're seeing here in this text is the response of the heavenly court arrayed, God's court, his hosts, their response to Christ's victory. And we'll see throughout this passage, it's shot through with language of the court, the heavenly court, legal language, in other words. It's interesting to note that as you go through this text. So verse 8, it gives us the outcome of the conflict. John doesn't spend a lot of time documenting one battle after another. He just goes right to the end. He, the dragon, was not strong enough, or he was defeated. And the dragon and his angels lose their place in heaven. A couple things are noteworthy about this. The victory that's in view here corresponds to the time of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, back in verse 5. That's what we just said. So that means that some ancient fall of Satan, you know, back before the creation or somewhere like that, that's not what's in view here. Whatever displacement of Satan is going on here, it happens when Jesus ascends. This is a kind of heavenly eviction notice of the principalities and powers arrayed against you, and it happens when Jesus is enthroned when he's inaugurated. The ascension changes the spiritual structure of the world. It changes the legal realities of the world. You'll notice the text says there's uh, no place for the satanic powers in the heavenly throne room. You might remember in the Old Testament, Satan himself appears... That's a legal word as well. He appears before God to accuse, that's another legal word, Job. Right in this courtroom. And now what the text is saying is his privileges and access are revoked. Now that Christ is ascended. That's one of the glories of the ascension. It's it's the main point in this text really. There's no place for him in heaven. We saw last week that there was a place for the woman in the wilderness. But there's now no place for the evil powers. And this means the powers arrayed against us, they're rootless. They're parasites. They're vagabonds. They have no standing in the court of God. So in verse 9, We read that the great dragon who sought to devour the child was thrown down. He's identified here explicitly as the ancient serpent, the diabolical creature of Genesis 3. He's the devil, which here means slanderer. And again, these words have a kind of legal sheen or cast to them. Satan means accuser, adversary. Again, legal terms. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. He's the one who deceived Adam and Eve. He's the one who slandered God. This one, the text says, is hurled or thrown down to the earth in the, as in fruit 
of Jesus' ascension. So that's the war. Described very briefly. The aftermath begins in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now. Meaning, with the ascension of Christ. Now. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. The ascension, among the many glories of it, is a declaration that Jesus is now universal King. This could not have happened simply on the basis of the resurrection alone. I think I've mentioned this here in the past, but a resurrected Jesus wandering around in Palestine, who has not ascended to the throne, could not be universal King. The ascension means Jesus is enthroned as king. And that announcement is here in the text. And this language, in this context, clearly refers to Christ's triumph over the principalities, over the other powers, over the other contenders for dominion in the earth. And we know that he's triumphed because the text tells us the accuser of our brothers, or our brethren, has been thrown down or hurled down. Remember in the the Gospels, it's particularly clear in Luke's Gospel, in his ministry, Jesus says of his own earthly life, his own ministry, he says that he was binding the strong man. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning in response to sending out his disciples to preach and to heal. This destruction of evil has already begun or commenced in Jesus' earthly life. This is why the book of Colossians tells us that in his cross he triumphed over, he disarmed, he made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. Revelation is picking up on this aspect of our Lord's death. This view of the atonement as a dramatic act of victory over the powers. So Jesus' appearance, his whole life, they dealt a decisive blow to the satanic hosts. And so what do the satanic hosts do now? They carry out these desperate, futile rear guard actions because they're displaced powers, they're usurpers, they're parasites. And this doesn't mean that Satan's not active, does not mean that, as we will see, or that he is harmless. It doesn't even mean that he's not in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 makes clear. We wrestle with principalities and powers in the heavenly places. But you know where he's not? He is not in heaven itself, in the court of God, because from there he's been evicted. And thus, that means, and this is important, it means he is prevented from presenting legal accusations against the saints before God's own tribunal. There is no one, no being, accusing you before the face of God. Your conscience may accuse you. Your past history may accuse you. Your mother may accuse you. Well, not on Mother's Day, but on other days. Your friends may accuse you. There's plenty of accusers in the world. There are no accusers of you before the face of God. There's an advocate there. That's the the force of the ascension in this text. 
Now the kingdom has come. And now there's no legal condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which we have to learn to not live by our feelings here, right? If you get a, if you get a verdict of not guilty from the court, it doesn't matter how you feel from day to day or hour to hour or moment to moment. It's an objective fact. Not guilty. No condemnation. There are no accusers. There are no prosecutors in the courtroom. Because there's one who has died for you and he has ascended and appeared before the court and he's evicted the other side. Again, this does not mean that you can't be harassed or hassled by even demonic activity. It's often said, and it's a good analogy, that the situation we're in is a lot like the situation in World War II between D-Day, when the decisive blow was struck, and V-Day, Victory Day, when Hitler finally surrendered. The church is, is in a situation much like that. The decisive blow is struck. Christ has destroyed the enemy. But he has hurled him down. So he can still do some damage. But he's a defeated foe. He's called in the text here the one who accuses them day and night before God. By his nature, he's a ceaseless accuser. But this text says he's lost his place. He's disbarred. He's disbarred. None of the briefs that he has against you are going to be heard. And so we come in verse 11 in one of the great summary verses in the book of Revelation The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down and they, the saints, have conquered him. They've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. This is how we overcome. This is the foundation for overcoming. Not our own strength, not our own goodness, not our own virtue. This blood. This is the blood which chapter 1 said frees us from our sins. The blood which in chapter 5 ransoms a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. The blood which in chapter 7 the saints coming out of the great tribulation have washed their robes in and made them white. It's this blood which means that no accusation against you shall stand. This blood stands over and against all charges and overrules them. And declares not guilty. Another way to put this is in the ascension, your acquittal is enshrined permanently before the face of God. But the saints don't overcome by this blood in isolation from their lives. They overcome, the text says, by the blood of the Lamb and and the word of their testimony. Another legal term, the word... Of their testimony. We are, like Jesus Christ throughout this book, witnesses. Yet another legal term. There are lots of metaphors for the Christian life. And we can't use one to the exclusion of the others. But one good one is witnesses where you see the whole cosmos as a court. And you're bearing legal testimony to these objective realities which have come to pass in Christ. You're... You're testifying. 
And here, when you hold fast to Christ, when you confess the gospel, you're agreeing with God's verdict, and you're becoming an overcomer. This is how we overcome. We go to Christ's cross. Free justification, we confess that. And this blood and this word of our testimony leads finally to be fleshed out in what the text says, not loving their lives even unto death. The blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and not loving your life even unto death. This is not a special property of the martyrs. Though the martyrs illustrated, of course, in a unique and a wonderful way. This is simply the condition of discipleship. He who does not take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. And this perseverance is part of what it means to overcome. But it's important to see that it stands on this objective legal foundation. Because you're persevering, well, it's going to be good some days, not so good other days. Good, good at 2 o'clock, not really good at 4 o'clock. Right? So, yes, we're called to persevere. But don't forget the earlier parts of this text. We persevere as those who are already acquitted. So the final ramification, the, the final aftermath of the war begins in verse 12. The text says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. So it refers to the heavenly host, but it also refers to the church, which we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, are those who dwell in heaven. The church has two places in the book of Revelation. Two, two locations. Heaven and the wilderness. Heaven is her, earthly, her, her heavenly existence, seen with spiritual eyes, if you will. The wilderness is her earthly existence. So, the text calls upon us even though Satan has been hurled down, it calls upon us to rejoice. This is joy in the face of satanic opposition because we know the opposition is a sign of his defeat. We often think this kind of hostile opposition in life is a sign of our own defeat or a sign of the gospel's defeat. It's actually a sign of Christ's victory. And John calls the church to rejoice. The text says, though, woe, the opposite of rejoicing, to the earth and the sea. And this probably refers to the church's earthly existence. It'll become clear next week when we see that this thrown down dragon continues to war against the saints on earth. And the reason there's woe is that the devil has come down to you in great wrath or fury because he knows his time is short. So this defeat... This throwing down of the devil means the situation on earth is volatile and unstable. Right? You can still get killed in Europe before Hitler surrenders after Normandy. And you can still get badly hurt in your spiritual life after Satan has been disbarred and thrown down. And you've been acquitted. Because when all heaven breaks loose, as we've said, all hell breaks loose. Jesus is always disrupting things. Here, his disruption is cosmic. So this disbarred accuser, this parasitical power, is now full of wrath, prowling and seeking to destroy in the time he has left. 
You want to know what this might have meant to John's original hearers, the churches in Asia Minor? Well, shortly after John wrote this, in Asia Minor around 110 AD, we have a letter. We have a letter from a Roman provincial governor named Pliny, Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of Pontus in Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he writes a letter to the emperor. Trajan is the emperor at this time. So again, we're talking maybe 15 years after Revelation was written. Pliny writes this letter to Trajan. I'm just going to read a small part of it. He writes to the emperor and he says this. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. You might see here an earthly manifestation of the accuser. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. Whatever the nature of your creed, please don't be stubborn about it. You know, fundamentalisms of all kind are really, really bad. So please adopt a creed that you don't really believe that much. Whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. And what was the punishment, Pliny? Execution. Then he says this a little later in the same letter. He says, an anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Hmm, I wonder where that came from. Possibly the synagogues of Satan in chapters 2 and 3. But this is what's going on on the ground in Asia Minor. And this is what John is... This, when, when you read this apocalyptic language with dragons and stars and revelation, you, your, your head can get a little disoriented, right? It creates a kind of vertigo. What's going on? This is John's apocalyptic, prophetic way of telling the church, this is what's happening behind what is happening to you. And so... Pliny continues writing to the, to the emperor. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me. It's very helpful of Pliny. He has a little prayer to the gods. You just have to read Pliny's prayer to the gods. You, you don't even have to make up your own prayer. Just read Pliny the, the Younger's prayer. He's the governor after all. He says... They invoke gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image. So there's two things you have to do. You have to pray to the gods, and you have to offer up a little wine and incense to the image of the emperor, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with statues of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. In other words, I hear that these people are not going to curse Christ if they're really Christians. So we have a routine. I give them a prayer, they pray the prayer. I give them a little wine and incense, they burn a little wine and incense. Right? To the federal government. I mean, to the the image of the emperor. Excuse me. Excuse me. To the American flag. So, 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 they burn a little wine and incense. It doesn't hurt anything. They don't believe it in their heart. Right? They just burn a little wine and incense. And then they curse Christ. 
And, and, and then, then we discharge them. Easy does it. Right? That's the accuser in action. And you know what? It's a sign of his weakness. It's a sign that he's been disbarred. Just like, just like the, the uh, forces hosing down and sicking dogs on the civil rights protesters was a sign of their weakness and their parasitical powers. So, his time is short. It's cut short because Christ's kingdom has come. Because the end is upon us. Because he's up on his throne. And so what we have in this passage is nothing more than an apocalyptic picture of the gospel. And the call of the gospel to a full-blooded faithfulness. You know what this text is? It struck me as I was looking at this text this week that it really is Romans chapter 8, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, transposed into a symbolic and apocalyptic key. There is now, now that the kingdom has come, as verse 10 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever truthfulness the accusations of Satan have against us, and considered in the abstract, they're often quite true, are they not? That's the force of them. Nevertheless, they're rejected from gaining any hearing by the blood of the Lamb. God, in the flesh of Christ, has condemned sin. The sufferings of the present age, the wilderness, great as they are, are not worthy, Paul says in Romans 8, to be compared to the glory that is to come. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's going to bring a legal charge against God elect, God's elect? If God justifies, who's going to condemn? Who's going to accuse The male child is raised and he's at the right hand of God interceding for you as your advocate. And thus, as Paul says, even if we're killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, we're more than overcomers or conquerors. This is a text which says nothing in life or death. No angels, no rulers, no defeated powers can separate us from the undying love of God and the ascended Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for the gospel. Amen.